0: Welcome to Leveling Up, where you'll learn from leading experts in talent development and explore how leaders in some of the world's most successful businesses approach
1: employee development, manager training, and more. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also listen on our website at levelingup.co.
0: Hey there, it's Mary, co-host of Leveling Up. In this week's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with three incredible leaders, Grant Goodale, the co-founder and CTO at the Digital Freight Network Convoy, Neela Campbell, director of people operations at HIMS and HERS, a telehealth service, and Jamie Seglars, the owner of the executive recruitment firm Guild Talent. He's also the co-founder of Operators Guild. These three leaders shared how their organizations are adapting to the uncertainties that are facing so many of us right now. During the course of our 30-minute conversation, we covered topics around recruitment, onboarding, preparing our workforces for a more distributed future, and many other topics. I hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. My name is Mary Fox, and I'm the co-founder and CEO here at Marlowe. With everything happening in the world right now, the pandemic really changing the way that we think about how we go to work, but also how our team members and employees think about work. I wanted to bring together a few leaders who can share their experiences right now as we're starting to see some of the glimpses of what the workplace might look like in the coming six, 12, 18 months. So I have with me today Grant Goodale, the CTO at Convoy. I have Neela Campbell, the director of people at for hims and hers and jamie seglars the owner of guild talent as well as the co-founder of the operators guild the plan today is to just have a conversation really i want to learn what your teams are doing right now how the pandemic has changed the way that you're thinking about work generally, but also, Jamie, I'd love to get into a little bit of how the workplace shifts that we're seeing might be impacting executive recruiting and how people are thinking about their teams. Are they recruiting more locally now or they're still recruiting more broadly? What's going on there? But before we do that, I'd love to just start with introductions. Starting with you, Grant, can you share a little bit about what is Convoy and also how has your team been impacted by the remote work situation?
2: Hi, I'm Grant. I'm the co-founder and CTO of Convoy. Convoy is the world's first digital freight network. Uh, We're bringing to bear modern technology to improve the efficiency and cost structure of commercial freight, so trucking primarily in the United States. We're about a thousand people with two primary offices, Seattle and Atlanta. COVID has produced some fairly interesting dynamics for us over the course of the last several months and, frankly, for freight in the United States in general. You can imagine a lot of companies that used to ship hundreds or thousands of truckloads a week are now shipping zero truckloads as their manufacturing facilities are shut down, et cetera. It's been a very interesting uh, several months. Thank you.
0: Nila, what's going on over at Hems and Hearst? Yeah, so I think we were a
3: little more uniquely positioned as already being kind of a telemedicine brand. So that part was less of a change. We launched in Target right before COVID happened. So we were curious about how that was gonna impact everything. And we are 150 employees currently throughout the U.S. with a growing fulfillment center in Ohio. So we were just getting ready to launch that in June, which was intended to have you know about 150, 200 employees by the end of 2021 as well. So it's been a lot of being flexible and figuring out the best way forward.
0: Absolutely. Can't wait to learn more about how your team has approached that. Jamie, what's happening at Guild Talent? You just started uh, pretty recently, no?
1: Yeah, Guild Talent is uh, about 18 months old. I've spent a lot of time thinking about with the way that recruiting was impacted when COVID hit, what my life would have been like if I had started it in, say, February of this year. Fortunately, I had some runway long before that. But Dale Talent is a little boutique executive search firm, focuses on leadership hiring within operations and finance. Outside of my team being remote first, we're obviously talking to a lot of candidates about their job search and talking with a lot of companies about hiring. Uh, Outside of that, I run a professional community called the Operators Guild, which is basically an association for 450 or so COOs and CFOs of venture-funded technology companies. One of the components of that group is a pretty lively email thread that has all of those people trying to figure out the same thing that we're talking about. You know, like, do we need to continue hiring here if the plan is to have people report back to the office in 2021 or? What are the things that people are doing to facilitate going fully remote? So outside of my own business, there's you know the candidates that we talk to and the members of the Operators Guild that I'm hearing about all this stuff constantly, basically.
0: It's interesting to think about mid-July, almost August, I guess. And everybody's thinking about 2021. It's like we've almost given up on 2020 in terms of where we are <laughs> um, location-wise. Neela, you mentioned um, as we were chatting that hims and hers has switched to being remote first. And I'm curious when you made that decision and, and what sparked that decision. I know that like Twitter, for example, was one of the first to come out and say, yes, we're definitely going remote first. Uh, a few other companies followed suit pretty quickly. Some companies are still holding back saying, okay, for now, we'll wait and see. What drove your decision?
3: It was a multi-pronged like decision making that we took, but we had a few huge launches right when the shutdown had happened. So we were all remote To begin with and we were kind of seeing how are these launches going to go uh they ended up being our most successful launches to date which we're not sure still where the secret sauce was in that part but that was kind of a key indicator that like we don't have to all be in the same place to keep things really productive. I also think one deciding factor was kind of feeling from the team that there was a lot of people that were kind of feeling demotivated or having a hard time getting motivated or getting my work done. And, you know, feel like I'm working at 70% or whatever that might be. And it was interesting kind of like science experiment to remove the, well, when we go back to the office and kind of setting the tone as we are remote starting now. And if that changes, that changes, but that is it. And the change in people's attitude was huge too. So then we've just seen even more productivity and even more drive and people feeling more comfortable with the way things are now.
0: What was the operational approach to make that happen? Was it just we're remote now or was it we're remote now, everybody gets a monitor, everybody gets a lab, you know what I mean? How did you adjust?
3: So we had to put in a few policies in place as far as kind of getting your work from home set up, to be productive and feel the best for each employee? How are we going to do that moving forward for new hires? Uh, what does this mean for recruiting? What does this mean for our office space that we did have? There was definitely an order of operations there to kind of distribute, clean out the office in a safe way. How do you get everyone back to their desk to clean it out kind of thing? So it was a, a logistical Nightmare.
1: Did did you like bifurcate what it meant to be a remote employee based on seniority or function within the business at all? Like does an entry level SDR have a different world that they live in as a sort of remote framework compared to a senior engineer?
3: You know, that's a great question. We really didn't scope anything out kind of at the policy top layer. It was so much more kind of team by team. How do managers manage? There already kind of tended to be those micro cultures within our larger culture of how teams are operating. So it kind of just continued to flow in that way. I kind of was waiting for things to bubble up or things to kind of hit my desk, but nothing really ever came. It kind of felt
2: smooth.
0: Great. You guys kind of had the same transition, right? Was it one day to the next year, the whole organization was remote? How did that happen?
2: It was about 48 hours, yes. So we, yeah. uh, we were keeping tabs on sort of the situation in Seattle and Atlanta at the same time. And when it became clear that Seattle was trending sort of within the tech community towards a work from home posture, well ahead even of, of the Seattle City guidelines we decided that we would make the transition both there and in Atlanta. Thankfully, we're recent enough that we built the company around everybody having a laptop, everybody having access to all the tools that need to do their work over the public internet. So we don't have server farms in the office that we had to figure out how to grant access to or anything like that. The transition went about as seamlessly as I could have hoped through no fault of our own.
0: I like Jimmy's question of, does it apply the same way at each level in the organization? Talking with people in consulting companies even, and you hear about how the entry-level people, they really rely on that shadowing and really observing how other people are working. How do you deal with that at Convoy?
2: Each team is sort of working to develop their own approach and practices towards it. Um, We've recently started a learning and development practice within the company to help us sort of take best practices, not just for this, but for learning in general and start to spread them across the company. But the reality is the needs for a software development team whose workflow is centered around GitHub and JIRA is almost completely different than the operations team in Atlanta, whose workflow is centered around custom internal tooling and logging into and out of their their workday. The various functions within the company have pretty broad latitude to define what productive means for them, what work from home means for them. We are working through on the workplace front a lot of the areas of productivity, sort of general productivity, access to uh, machines or, or monitors or desks and what have you as uh, a way of trying to be productive, as well as for those folks whose home situations are more challenging in terms of productivity how do we get people back into the office in as safe a way as possible similar to what uh, amazon is actually starting to open up and do here in seattle as well
1: seems like the uh, while every team is different like the broad commonality is that more junior people need more training and more oversight and the people that are in the middle what we're seeing certainly with a director and vp level placements the candidates that we're talking to is that while like management philosophy was a always a table stake of, of any of the recruiting projects and the placements that we make. People are spiking pretty high on it. It's like something that they're indexing or over-indexing on because they know the importance of like being a good manager needs like extra thorough, extra time and attention. And then if you take that from the ICs that need a lot more focus and sort of framework and guidance, the mid managers are sort of this like remarkable inflection point where a first-time manager that gets promoted from individual contributor to manager they are a first-time manager that is managing a team of first-time employees, ICs, and that there's a remarkable either positive or potentially catastrophic trickle out effect if those first-time managers don't have the framework that they need to like be good managers, which means that the directors above them and the VPs above them need to be good at training first-time managers. And there's this whole philosophy that goes sort of top down and bottom up that if you take it to, you know, the C-suite, it's the same thing, right? It's like, what is your philosophy about managing these people? And how do you hold their hands as this sort of extrapolates its way out through what is now a fully remote workforce?
0: Are you you seeing, Jamie, a lot of intention around how your clients or people in your network are handling this right now when you look at the operator's guild, for example?
1: You would need to be like remarkably tone deaf to not know that it is something that is important I think that what will be really interesting in this conversations about the future of work is that we're, we're sort of one step into the normalization process of this, right? And so in March, when everything shut down, everyone sort of took this, holy heck, I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to sort of freeze and try to pause reality for as long as I can and hope that this thing just blows over. And we're now four months into it where like, the show must go on, the world must continue spinning. And like that option of just stopping doesn't exist anymore. Uh, And so over the last couple of months, people have started coming out of their caves after winter and realizing that this is the new reality. And so they are very focused on trying to figure it out. But it's still, you know, the dust isn't settled. No one knows what the right approach is. I mean, there's going to be books written on this over the next years about like, where catastrophic failures of going remote as well as, you know, who did it right and how they can roll that out to, to future companies. So everyone's aware that it's important, certainly. Um, but I don't think the playbook is is set in stone yet with like how it's going to happen.
0: Training managers from the beginning is tough. This was tough in an office. Now it's just doubly yeah. challenging Yeah, remotely. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, as you're all thinking about the changes that you've described, how much yeah. of this is going to be here to stay for the long haul. And I know, no pun intended, um, <laughs> here to stay for the long haul versus here to just as a temporary fix. I, I know that there's only so much visibility we have moving forward, but where do you think some of these factors will go back to how they used to be versus you know changing?
1: I'll certainly say that I don't think that we're at the point that when offices open back up, that it's going to be like 80% remote, 20% are in the office. So it's not going to be like that that drastic of a shift. Whereas, you know, I think it was probably like 5% or 8% of folks were remote and the rest of the 90 or 92% were going into the office. It's not going to be that drastic of a shift, but of the I think 10 or 12 projects that we've kicked off in the last couple of months, 50% of them have been fully open to hiring someone remote. Whereas that number was much more like, you know, one out of one out of 10 projects was okay to be done remote back to my comment about the dust not settling like there is an obvious shift and this is this is coming and this is here to stay and what milo was saying that we are a remote company now and within the members of the operators guild it's it's probably that same line of 25% of companies now are like hiring remote and they're becoming a remote company it'll be decades before that sort of like fully remote thing extrapolates out into you know all of the companies it'll be sort of a generational transition But there's certainly an uptick, you know, over six months ago to now and, you know, what we're going to be saying six months from now.
3: We've hired in like six new states. So we're really like, you know, driving towards that. It's going to be harder to untangle if like, you know, things do open up for change. So I think we're, we're pretty committed.
0: You know, when I think about it, it's like you hired all these people before, then the pandemic hit, and then now you have this team of people who are working remotely, but a good portion of them probably chose their role because it was in the office and they could work next to each other and have that camaraderie. Jamie, to your point of it's going to take a while, but I think we're going to see a lot of people switching jobs pretty Mm -hmm. quickly here. Are you seeing that already, Neela? I anticipated some fallout from making this remote first decision. I haven't seen it happen yet it
3: seems like it's working better than people thought it would. But it's definitely still possible as things get better and more companies start hiring more. It's definitely still possible. It's hard to say.
1: Do you guys allocate, Neela any budget for what used to go towards the cost per employee of food in the office or office space? Like what we can do to sort of enrich the employee experience? I read an article about how like, The value proposition of being a Facebook employee when you don't have the unlimited food and cafeteria and everything else has changed. And it'll be really interesting to see what the sort of new perk package looks like for the modern startup that is trying to differentiate. And it's, you know, whether it's going to be better actual health benefits or, you know, car allowance or trips or like what the thing is that's just going to sort of differentiate people.
3: Yeah, absolutely. That has been something I'm still trying to like resolve. And my my goal is by open enrollment in Jan 2021. We have this like beautiful package that feels really like special. Um, It's still kind of TBD. So if anyone has any
2: really good ideas. (laughs) It's a great question. It'll be interesting to see in particular, I think, for the software developers and the, the technologists who are very used to having pretty robust compensation packages including lots of benefits that, to your point, are no longer viable, like Google's not delivering food to people's homes and isn't deferring the cost of the food they eat in their homes. So the changing nature of work, I hope, drives people towards companies that are more meaningful to them and the things that are important to them. There seems to be a pretty natural trend towards people wanting to work places where the mission aligns with their own personal values. So I'm hopeful that the thing that motivates the next wave of job transitions is less about are you going to pay for my internet or not? And more about, hey, what you're doing seems really meaningful and impactful. And I didn't live where you are now, but but now I can actually work for you anyway.
1: Yeah, we're uh, exactly the same as Grant. I mean, the, the projects that we work on in this sort of like mid-leadership director, head of VP world, for the projects that are fully remote, what it allows for is for us to be much more targeted with the people that we're messaging because the candidate pool is broader. If you're looking for people all across the country, you're not just looking for people that have A certain level of leadership or certain domain expertise, but it's like, you know, what is it about this person that is going to like tie them to the company? I totally agree that there's going to become a normalization. Like, there's only so many perks that you get a meal delivered to you or whatever, but without the camaraderie of going into the office, it literally just becomes a business decision for people like, you know, the value of my perks, since it's not human relationships and interaction, is worth an additional $30,000, whether it comes in the form of a meal stipend or a trip to Hawaii, it doesn't really matter. So the rest of it's going to be, what am I working on?
2: Yep, And I think one of the areas we worry about in that particular regard is a lot of what we found great success with as we hired was after the first day was bringing people into the office and helping them understand the nuance of our business and the nuance of the broader freight space, helping them sort of build their own personal connection to what we're trying to accomplish and trying to do that remotely over video chat when people aren't Hearing other teams' viewpoints, aren't hearing the broader conversation in the company about what's happening. Is it's putting a lot of interesting strain on our onboarding processes, and we're having to get very creative.
0: Anything you're able to share on on what you've added to your onboarding process?
2: Nothing that I feel rises to the level of you should definitely copy this.
0: <laughs> Time will tell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and that brings the next question, which is, how are we thinking about onboarding and communication internally? Right, like if you're joining this new company, you're still joining because you're hopefully getting to work with really smart people in an area that you care about. And that onboarding process, I can't imagine what it'll look like five years from now if you're not just working across different cities and states, but also different time zones and just have a really different structured team. It's something
3: that me and my team talk about every week at our standup. It's kind of like, what are we doing this week? How can we make it better? What is everybody hearing in the space? So it's something that we're still really trying to like perfect and how can we get it really good? It's definitely kind of similar. It's like kind of in line with what we were doing when people were in the office with like filling their calendar with one-on-ones in their first week, sending them swag, sending them a card that's personalized, that all that stuff is still kind of what we're doing. But then how can we really roll out the red carpet? How can we really like tie that like human interaction in?
1: It's still kind of a locked box to me. Seems like there's a, just a general need for it to be a little bit more processized and structured. What used to be just go wander the pit and you know your teammates will be there and you'll organically strike up conversations with people because they want to meet the new person. But that needs to be otherwise facilitated what used to happen organically and using a tool like Donut or something for auto introductions for other team members to make sure that it happens. Similarly, where it was, you're going to have a rotation of people and like there's this opportunity for you to just look like a lost duckling and someone's going to help you. you. know That can be okay in an in in-person culture. Because it allows you to sort of have randomized one on one conversations with people and build rapport. And if that happens when you're remote, you're literally just sitting there by yourself wondering why your company has left you out to dry. So I imagine the answer is gonna be that there's gonna be like more dedication towards onboarding. It's gonna be more intentional what the process looks like, the checkings for making sure that you're like hitting these things that need to happen in the first hour or the first day or the first week the onboarding templates to follow will be uh, arduous to say the least to make sure that like everyone is getting all of the love that they need from IT and admin and HR and their direct manager and everything else.
2: And at the end of the day, it still takes you nine months to a year to figure out whether it works.
1: Oh, for sure. There's the absolute most thorough checklists are not going to solve for like the human intelligence piece of this, which is like, does the person like it or are they just checking the boxes? And that's where this sort of like the direct manager and the direct manager of the direct manager, like chain of command comes in uh, and tools like reflective or lattice that are going to be sort of employee sentiment based. They're going to have a whole slew of things on their hands that are focused on just employee sentiment. And, you know, how do we, I've got a number of personal friends that have said that like a husband and wife, couple of mine that are friends, they both work at Google. And they're like, we can never leave the Bay area because we want to be VPs at Google. And the way that you do that is by sort of, navigating politically like in person and like there's a a huge tie to that and so the way companies performance manage and train and develop new employees is one thing but sort of the promotion culture and and who we want for our next role you know how they view those things is totally different as well because it's harder now to to stand out as someone who's like going above and beyond to support your comrades if there's not a, a mechanism for capturing that feedback right Whereas a director can just sort of see that, you know, Tommy's staying late to work with the new guy and the director's like physically in the office watching that, that doesn't happen anymore, right?
0: It begs the question around inclusivity in the workplace too, right? Everything you just described, it's is commonplace in a lot of organizations, um, but it's not necessarily always fair, right? If, if the director happens to see Tommy working with the new guy, it doesn't happen to see the other person. It makes me wonder if we're headed toward a world where it is based on that outcomes and results rather than on inputs and relationships as much. But I mean, obviously it's always going to be relationships. So, you know, Jamie, for you, I'm wondering, are you seeing a difference in the type of leader executive that's going to work well in a remote culture versus the type that really might need that in-person shoulder to shoulder, really seeing what's going on day to day? How does that change the recruitment process there?
1: The answer for executive hiring is still that there's like a really important marriage of personalities between right. the incumbent and the, the current members of the executive team. There's very much not a one size fits all answer there. And it's going to be like largely dependent on the culture that has been built by the current executive team. And then whether they like that culture or not, whether it's working or not, whether they want someone that's going to be additive to it or going to like intentionally stir the pot. I don't think necessarily it's to say that like, there is going to be a shift that the only way that performance management happens in the future is performance by metrics. I think that like most leadership hires, it's like whether you manage by metrics or manage by personalities, Like one thing that I think will remain or oh, that will increase is like, well, I guess VPSL uh, is pretty simple. I don't care whether you manage by fear or by development. Like, you have a number to hit. Go hit the number or don't. I don't really care. That mandate is going to be even further under the microscope because executives that don't have the luxury of seeing what you're doing day to day in the office are like otherwise sort of forced to just look at the numbers, right? And so there's going to be more of a focus on to like, what is the output of this thing? You know, it might give you a little bit of a stay of execution if you're on the same page with the executive team and you're being very sort of collaborative with him and communicative with him or her about, you know, what your strategy is. But ultimately, the output is going to be what matters, whether you get there by managing your team by numbers or not. The CEO is not going to care.
2: Yeah, I also think you're going to see cultures trend towards more written information capture as a means of trying to address this as well. We're already seeing it within our organization. We're seeing more doc writing and we were already a pretty heavy writing culture to begin with both as a means of knowledge capture and transfer, but also as a means of performance management, just understanding the work that your directs are better doing more thoroughly, understanding the impact that work is having more thoroughly. It's hard to overstate how uh, useful having those artifacts is and being able to refer back to them. In our particular case, Google Suite means we also capture all the conversation around them. And so you can see how people show up in conversations, sometimes more adversarial as people challenge their ideas in a way that's captured uh, for a longer period of time, which has been pretty useful.
0: Nila, anything to add on that front? Uh,
3: This just gives me
0: ideas on how we should be keeping (laughs) our
3: performance management plan.
0: And for what it's worth, we're seeing this across the board. We we work with um, mid-level managers, director level, as well as more junior and more senior. But... We're seeing a lot more training around self-advocacy, You know, really communicating upward and, and communicating what you're working on and the results of what you're working on, where you're getting blocked, what resources you need. This remote environment does create a space that's easier for some people who may not speak up in, in an all-hands meeting, but can ping something on Slack in a way that they might not have before. So I, I think that we will see a shift in, in how managers are managing their teams, creating more space for people to speak up in ways that has traditionally been lacking. And we're, of course, saying that across the board with, with the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, making sure that people are actually heard. There's something about the remote work environment that just makes that either better or worse, right? And so I think if you are intentional about it, it can be better. You know, at Convoy, for example, Grant, is that some, is inclusivity a topic that's coming up in the workplace right now in terms of helping your team members feel more inclusive? Uh,
2: very much yeah. so. Um, frankly, it's been one that's come up since before COVID as well. So uh, I think to your point, taking the in-person dynamic out of group dynamics has been useful in many cases. We're seeing more people feel comfortable speaking up in a variety of of venues or in a variety of ways um, and having their voices heard, which is good. We actually did a fair amount of early manager training around how to run more inclusive meetings, but now we're actually driving training across our entire management team to have, you know, sort of both more inclusive meetings and also ensuring hard conversations are happening. Both sides of that are, I think, important. We have to be able to obviously hear the voices of everyone at the company, hopefully equally. But I think going back to the previous point, one of the challenges we can wind up in this situation for managers is avoiding the hard conversation. And so making sure candor is part of the conversation as well is pretty important. We, we ran an
1: event. Last year for the Operators Guild, uh, one of the members is a gentleman named Brooks. He's the chief operating officer of a company out of San Diego called House Call Pro. The head of people for House Call Pro was the former head of people for Trader Joe's. And I don't know about you guys, but I personally, like, I love going to Trader Joe's if for no other reason than like the average employee there is just so remarkably bubbly and like willing to help that, like, like they, they have done something really great there when it comes time to like hiring, onboarding, development, and the rest. And what she had created at Twitter Joe's and has since rolled out to House called Pro and that she shared with all the members of the Operators Guild is like their internal manager curriculum. And they basically would time the, the promotion of managers in a way that would allow them to create basically cohorts of managers, even if it was just two or three people. Uh, And the reason they would do that is that like first-time managers would go through uh, a sequence of basically trainings, right? Congrats on your promotion and like once a month for the next six months, we're going to have a working session for a half day, once a month to go over what it means to have a one-on-one to go over performance reviews, to go over whatever. Right. And it's, it's back to my comment earlier that it just needs to be a little bit more intentional and to give people the tools and to be a little bit more processized. That's not to say that like, it's entirely regimented, right? You don't have to email everyone at 9.30 in the morning because that's part of the thing, but you need to give them more tools.
0: Hopefully we'll see more and more useful tools and sort of a culling of what's not working um, as this is moving forward over the next six to to 12 months. Because as you've all mentioned, this is the early days for sure. And it's hard to tell which parts are going to be uh, most essential, but, but also not so hard, right? A lot of what we've talked about is we all know we're supposed to be doing it. It's important communication, really mapping out processes, making sure that everybody knows what's expected of them right now, but actually turning that into something that happens, right? Making sure that it's actually being carried out is tougher and tougher without leadership. So hopefully we'll, we'll see this across the board. As we wrap up, I have one question. So I don't know, have any of you seen um, Barbados? They just announced that you don't have to pay Barbados taxes. They're about to open up this visa where anybody can come work there for up to a year, Absolutely. live there. And so I'm starting to, to wonder what we're expecting to shift. And, you know, I know people who are moving back to their home countries. The biggest problem is just policy and regulation. Yes or no, do you think that your team members are going to start moving internationally, just finding whatever works for them? And how are you thinking about synchronous versus asynchronous work uh, within your organizations right now?
2: So I think we expect, if this drags on, and I don't see any reason to expect it won't, um, I think we expect to see increasing interest from our employee base in working from a variety of locations. I think the education journey that we're on with our employee base has a lot to do with please understand the impact that that relocation has on the business. Some people are already set up for all 50 states and are, have sort of baked that cost into their ongoing model. It turns out there are some very interesting taxation models out there. As anybody who's moved to California halfway through a work year and discovered um, that California has capital gains tax, for example, um, can easily attest to. As we go forward, our sort of short-term concern is how do we uh, forestall any any productivity loss, and more importantly, forestall any surprises. for for the employees. We want to make sure that we're set up properly to support employees wherever they happen to be. We want to make sure that we're not incurring, you know, outrageous business expense because the particular city your family lives in taxes, payroll at 100% rate or some other crazy thing. The other piece though, which is even more interesting, I think is we are still very much, I think somebody mentioned this earlier, in a world where most of the people at Convoy had experience working with each other in person prior to covid and so there's a very different experience, I think, when you start to open this up to fully remote distributed work as opposed to work from home in conjunction with a sort of core office of now that you're introducing new people into the mix who didn't have that connectivity, can you take the success you're having right now and project that forward to an ent- a new, the, the next 100 employees, the next 200 employees? And so I think I'm less concerned about existing employees relocating to someplace else because they built that connective tissue already. I'm more concerned that the organization will adopt something that's hard to unwind, which I think Neil, you mentioned, which is if we suddenly discover that we're not in a good place, it's actually much harder, I think, to tell people to come back than it is to tell people they can work from places even temporarily. And so I do still expect pressure from employees to support work pretty much anywhere. Uh, but I
1: think we're being relatively conservative about opening up that door just yet. Do either of you guys have a strategy or is it been decided yet whether or not you're going to change people's salaries if they do decide to relocate? Great question. We haven't made any decisions there. Does an engineer doing the exact same job in Barbados get paid the same right now as he gets paid in downtown San Francisco for doing the exact same work, or is it different? It's
2: a great question. Uh, I don't have <laughs> an answer for you because we haven't we haven't had to deal with it.
0: Neil looks like she's putting the fifth on this one too. So I'm <laughs> not what I'm allowed to say yet. <laughs> yep. So I, I was going to ask that um, in a different context too, Jamie, because you know you see like the companies of. Googles of the world, Facebooks, et cetera, where today and long before the pandemic, if you relocated from San Francisco to Atlanta, you're just getting a really different base compensation. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Like, do you think that this will start to, especially from a tech perspective, do you see that this will start to level out? Because I don't think that it's fair In uh, Austin, Texas, we're seeing that engineers are starting to make more Bay Area salaries um, than they used to. How will this level out over the coming months?
1: The interesting thing that used to happen um, is that it was very much focused on the Bay Area. And there was a cost of living adjustment for living in the Bay Area because they wanted you in the Bay Area because they wanted you in the office. Uh, And what has the transition that has happened now is... That people are living here because it's more expensive and now there's an exodus to everywhere around the bay area moving to phoenix or austin or Tahoe or anywhere else because um, you know the housing prices there you've even seen just the uptick in the last four months because people are like facebook and google and twitter so you don't ever have to come back that's a lot of people just by itself right so that'll impact the market for housing the interesting thing that is shifting is it used to be bay area is 100% and non Bay Area is, you know, 50 or 60 or 70% of that. But now people are leaving the Bay Area and taking their wages with them, right? Uh, and frankly, I had one case of someone that just flat out lied, said, like, yeah, I'm living in the Bay Area. So this isn't even an issue now, right? Like, I'm not going to meet you in person because it's not safe. But, you know, how are you going to prove that I'm not in the Bay Area when I'm actually on a beach in Costa Rica, right? <laughs> and uh, the thing that I think is going to happen, right, is that The transition that we're already seeing, that outlier example aside, is that it's being normalized against what the output is and what the value is that you're bringing into the organization. the The big question that yet to be seen is whether that's going to be the Bay Area rate that extrapolates out to to other places, or if you no longer need to live in the Bay Area anymore, and so it's not going to be the Bay Area rate. It's going to be you know whatever Bay Area minus whatever percent because you know the Bay Area for sure is paying people based on a premium, right? Part of that is the cost of living, the rest of it is that, you know, the average tech company in the Bay Area is needing to compete with the Facebooks and Apples and Googles. And so when people go remote, they don't have the cost of living. They don't have the, the comp competitive. There's going to be a dog-eat-dog, dog though, where like, whereas average Series B companies, they would get funded, or Series A companies, they'd get funded in the Bay Area. But then they would go somewhere else because they couldn't compete for, for talent. Either on cost or quality, because they didn't have you know second tier investors with a less than ideal product in a crowded space. There's no way they're competing for, with engineers against the, the big dogs. So they would run to a second market, right, to try and find people that would allow them to be competitive in that other market. Basically, now Google and Facebook and Apple are just chasing after them and saying, "Now we can pay them more, and they're remote." So good luck. Uh, and that's the part that I'm particularly interested in is like now that. Now that the whole playing field is level, like it's gonna prove really interesting how earlier stage companies are differentiating themselves to compete for talent when, you know, there is no geographic benefit.
0: It used to be that if you lived in Kansas, for example, that's where I'm from, Cerner was the place where all the the engineers would go work and get paid really well for Kansas City and they wanted to stay local and that's so that's just where they worked. Well, now what's to stop some other company from coming in hiring those engineers and now Cerner has to w- raise their wages. So that's Cerner's a major company, but I think we'll see pay increases across the US and whether or not a dip in San Francisco, but changes the market in a big way. Well it's also going to
1: change the fundraising strategy and the growth strategy for any company that needs to get over that hurdle, right? Because like, you know, the matrix that they have for how they're paying people and what what amount of money they need to raise to be able to get over their growth hurdles as a company is going to totally evolve if they're having to pay their people twenty percent more.
0: Yeah, last question. What do you wish you knew four months ago? What would you have changed to really just rapid fire?
1: I would have
2: set my horizon for, we're not gonna ask you to return to the office significantly further out so that employees had greater certainty around how 2020 was gonna play out for them.
3: I think we would have done remote first earlier, we made that
0: decision in March.
1: I would have shorted a bunch of stocks in the stock market. That doesn't right at the right well.
0: time. And my husband asked me what Twilio was the other day and I was like, yeah, that was the stock you should have bought six months earlier. I, uh, <laughs> I'll
1: tell you what. Um, They've done quite well.
0: Well, thank you so much, all of you, for, for taking the time out of your day. I know you're busy people and I've definitely gained a new perspective from each of you and I hope that our, our audience will as well. Appreciate your time and good luck with the coming months of hopefully transitioning to that new normal. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed
1: this episode, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Head over to levelingup.co to join our newsletter
0: and to find past episodes.